Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources or any other resources you find online would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. Our exposition of this letter to the elect exiles in dispersion. Just as a reminder, we have titled this series, Faithful Sojourners, Walking Worthy in a Wayward World. It's truly what this is all about, isn't it? Walking worthy in a world that is far from the Lord. Being faithful as we sojourn here, waiting for the blessed appearance of our Lord and Savior that we just spoke of. And on that day, we will sing for 10,000 more years, and we will still have 10,000 more years to go. I can't wait for that day. How about you? We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. We have established, I hope, clearly that this letter is written to exhort believers who are either in the midst of trials and persecution or will soon face it. In doing so, Peter will call his audience's attention to God's grace. In verse 13, we're going to have a really big therefore coming up where Peter is going to turn to begin his exhortation, and it's all going to be predicated on the grace displayed in verses 1 through 12. After all, we see the faithfulness of God all throughout this section, haven't we? Verses 1 and 2 display God's grace in predestinating us to salvation, the Son purchasing salvation for us and the spirit applying salvation to us verses three through five display god's power in resurrecting christ from the dead and keeping us secure in this life to receive our guaranteed inheritance in the next verses six through nine that we covered last week display god's faithfulness in not allowing trials into our life for no purpose or no reason, but instead accomplishing the proving of our faith through those trials. And now in verses 10, 11, and 12, we're going to see God's sovereignty on full display in having predicted a coming grace that would be bestowed upon both Jew and Gentile through the suffering of Christ, and this was not only prophesied, but it was accomplished. Not only was it accomplished, but it is now proclaimed. 
in each of these smaller sections that we have looked at, Peter has drawn our attention to salvation. As a matter of fact, in each section that we have looked at, that word has been there. So we have been learning about the grace of God. This letter written to exhort believers to stand firm in God's grace through persecution, he has clearly been laying a firm foundation upon which he will tell Christians to stand. Namely, to stand firm in and on the grace that God has given you in salvation. Persecution cannot take it away from you. And the trials only prove that it has been given to you. No matter what happens around us, if God has given us salvation, no harm can befall us that is outside of his good and perfect plan to see us through to the end to receive the fullness of this great inheritance that he is keeping locked away in heaven for you and I. This morning, we're going to focus on verses 10, 11, and 12. But to get the whole picture, I want us to go back to verse 3. And we're going to read verses 3 through 12. So if you would, please stand with me as we read God's word together. This is the word of the living God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning to study your word, Lord, I pray that you would illuminate the eyes of our heart, that we may see 
that we may clearly see what your word is saying. I pray that as we study about this great salvation, Lord, that we would leave this place rejoicing, knowing, Lord, that if you have given us Christ, surely along with him, you will give us all things. I pray that you bless the preaching of your word and the receiving of your word for the glory of Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I love how this section opens concerning this salvation. In other words, Peter is going to say one more wonderful thing in reference to this great salvation, and that is the title of our sermon today is Our Great Salvation. This will be the last time he uses soteria or salvation in this opening section, but it's certainly not the least. As you read this whole section, you're left with nothing to say, but how magnificent a salvation this is. That it was predestined by the Father. The plan of salvation was performed by the Son and prophesied of through the prophets by the Spirit who now pours the love of God into the hearts of his children. Peter is very deliberately leaving out any mention of putting hope in your situation. Remember, he is laying a foundation upon which he will tell us to persevere and to stand firm in the face of trials and persecution. And he doesn't say anything about putting your hope in your situation. He is deliberately pointing us to the cross, to the work of Christ, to the predestinating us to salvation by the Father, to the glorious inheritance that awaits us in the next life. In our day, we certainly seem to only want comfort and ease. Though we would never admit it, we do live this way, don't we? We readily affirm the sovereignty of God when things are going well. And then when things go slightly awry, we fall apart. Why? God is revealing that we are hoping in this life and in certain situations turning out favorably. That is exactly what he's working out of you in trials. And this is exactly what the audience Peter is writing to cannot do because they are going through various trials that are grieving them and they will go through more. They need to be prepared, but how? So put yourself in Peter's shoes. He's writing to these elect exiles in the dispersion, knowing that they are facing persecution and more is to come. What do I say? And granted, we are not inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the inerrant word. But what is it that would be readily on our minds? Dear Christians, everything is going to be okay. Dear Christians, everything is going to be okay. You can do this. You are enough. That's not at all what Peter writes, is it? by pointing them to what Christ has done, by pointing them to the fact, the reality, 
that they are saved. They have no need to become disheartened, for their sins are gone. You understand, this is no small thing. We take our salvation for granted readily. But it is no small matter that the Holy Spirit has been poured into your heart, transforming you, wiping your sins away, sealing you for the last day, keeping a great inheritance in heaven locked away for you, causing you to persevere through trials. This is no small thing. Who then needs comfort and ease in this life? Really, though, if we would grasp this, things would be so different for us. All of Satan's attempts to discourage us and dishearten us would be laughable. Really, you're going to come at me with stuff? <laughs> I have a great inheritance in heaven given to me by the Most High God. Jesus Christ spilled his blood for me. You're going to come at me with this? With hard times? With trials? I trust in God. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. This is the reality for the Christian. This is no small thing. This isn't something that we just say, yeah, but this salvation that we have been given was given to us from before the foundation of the earth. God planned it that long ago and sent his son to purchase salvation for you. His only son spilled his blood for you. His spirit was then given to you to regenerate you and seal you to the last day. Your life is so radically different now that you can rejoice in the midst of suffering because you know this too is a grace of God. He sends suffering your way not as a cruel punishment, but as a grace to change you and shape you and mold you. This salvation you've been given is so magnificent, so unthinkable, so precious that even prophets who spoke for God and worked Miracles wanted to learn more about it. And even angels themselves longed to look into these things. This, all of this, is your reason not to lose heart in the midst of any trial, but to press on, to be faithful sojourners, to stand firm in the midst of a wayward world, because you are not of this world. You are waiting for a new one. Peter opens with this statement concerning this salvation. And the rest of this passage is concerning this salvation. So I want us to work through six different lessons that Peter is teaching us about this glorious salvation we have. Number one, it was prophesied and now fulfilled. Look at what he says. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And then down at verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced. The salvation that was prophesied of 
that would happen, that would come to pass. The coming one, the Messiah, has come. Salvation has been offered now. It was purchased, but it was first prophesied. All of Scripture speaks in one voice. All of Scripture speaks in one voice. The salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. As early as Genesis chapter 3, we find the prophecies of a coming Messiah. He tells the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This coming seed was the coming Messiah. Prophesied in the garden. Listen. Salvation, this plan, was not plan B. God did not see Adam and Eve mess up and say, oh no, what am I going to do now? Oh my gosh. Everything was good, and then now they... That's not what happened. Before, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, before that happened, God purposed himself. He purposed to enact a plan that would give him the most glory. You know what that plan is? The plan that we're living out right now. That everything would be created, that he would send a Messiah, that he would display his mercy in dealing with sinners who will never come to repentance, that he would display his grace by giving grace to some sinners who could not come to repentance without him, that he would display his love by pouring it into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that he would display his justice by having his own son stand in place for us so that he could forgive us without ever tarnishing his justice. He displays all of his attributes in salvation. Do you understand that? That is why this salvation is so glorious. And it was plan A. Because God stands to receive the most glory in this plan. The skins that God made to cover Adam and Eve, that was a picture of Christ. The ark, that was a picture of Christ. The ram caught in the thicket as Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, that was Christ. The blood put on the doorposts so the angel of death would pass over the home, that was Christ. The sacrificial system, that was a picture of Christ. David conquering the unbeatable foe Goliath, that was an image of Christ. The suffering servant in Isaiah, that's Christ. Christ, 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 it's all about him. Those Old Testament stories aren't for us to look to and rip them out of their context and use them as motivation to get out of debt. That is not what they're there for. They are there to point us to a coming one, a coming Messiah, a coming Savior who can do what you and I cannot do. Namely, live a perfect, blameless life for sinners. They are all images and portraits, portraits of the coming Lamb of God who would take the sins of his people away. This indicates to us that it was planned and purposed. This plan of salvation, again, was not plan B. 
It was plan A. It was not God's best attempt to figure out how to work things out since everything was messed up. This was his plan all along. If we think for one moment that our failings and our mistakes are going to thwart the sovereign decree of Almighty God, we are fooled. We're fooling ourselves. It indicates to us God's sovereignty, doesn't it? Romans 4.17 tells us he is able to call into existence the things that do not exist, like the coming Messiah. He speaks the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Okay, well, what sets you apart, God? Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That is the God we serve. Nothing thwarts his plan. He can prophesy what is going to happen because he's going to make it happen. He brings to pass all that he has spoken. God's power is displayed here in causing this to come to pass. If he has ensured by his own hand that throughout the whole of human history, his plan of salvation would come into fruition, really, come on, what do we have to worry about ever? Think about that. Since before the garden, God has been working his plan out to absolute perfection. Why should you and I ever worry about anything? He knows what he's doing. He has proven that throughout creation. This is surely Peter's point from the opening greeting until now. It's to show us the magnitude of God's plan of salvation and the extent to which we are saved. Hebrews 7.25 says that he is able to save us to the uttermost. In other words, he is able to make sure that you are completely saved. Why? Because he prophesied these things long ago. As surely as he brought his plan of salvation to pass, surely he will keep you until you are finally saved on the last day. Is that exciting to anyone but me? That is absolutely incredible. That before the foundations of the earth, God had already secured your salvation. You were already, it was done already. That is why you and I can trust him completely. You can pray and bring all of your heavy burdens and bring everything that weighs you down and seriously lay it at his feet and say, you know what you're doing. I'm going to busy myself worshiping you and being faithful to you and trusting in you and learning about you because you know what you're doing. That's the God we serve. Number two, prophets longed for what we have. The obviously or manifestly miraculous signs of prophecy and healings and signs and wonders, they all were to serve a purpose and a time. The miraculous was used by God to confirm 
prophecies that he gave to his prophets as from God. They were a seal of approval, a, a certificate of authenticity. That this is God speaking, how do we know? Look at the signs and wonders. It was all to confirm the legitimacy of the message. Thus, the prophets understood the legitimacy of the prophecies that they were receiving. They knew that what was being spoken to them by God was real. And the words were sure to be accomplished. Look at what it says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. This is very diligent work that they were putting in. When is this going to happen, God? What is this that you are telling me? It doesn't say that the prophets searched and inquired diligently to see if this thing was true or to see if it would actually happen. It doesn't say the prophets were uncertain if they got their prophecies right, does it? Which is what prophecy looks like today in modern churches. And I'm not sure, but I think God is saying, God's never been wrong for a moment. If you get a word from God, which we don't unless we read the Bible, if you get a word from God, it is a sure word. You can bet your money on it. That was a side note. But instead, they were searching diligently to find out when this amazing grace would be revealed. In other words, they were always looking forward to the days you and I live in right now when we have access to the Father through the Son by the indwelling of the Spirit. They were looking forward to the day when God would make good on His promise when He said in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. When, Lord? When will these things come to pass? I want that, you can imagine the prophet saying. Can you imagine the people of those days taking their sacrifice to the temple on the Day of Atonement, reliving all of the sins of the past year, and just longing for the day when this promise would be fulfilled. Knowing that these sacrifices are not enough to once and for all cleanse me of my sin and it's ever before me. The constant reminder of their guilt before the Lord year after year. No doubt these prophets were searching diligently to figure out when this coming one was going to come. Will I be alive to see it? prophets of old were prophesying of the day you and I live in right now. Ordinary sinners can be born again to a living hope thanks to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We now have an inheritance stored up for us in heaven and God himself ensures our final salvation by guarding us according to his power so we know then our trials are not intended to end in our demise but they are proving that our faith is real that indeed it is a saving faith we love the one we've never seen though we've never laid our eyes on him we trust him and this is all thanks to the fulfillment of what was prophesied through the prophets of old folks that is a sovereign god we so often look back on days gone by with 
almost a sense of envy, don't we? Because we don't see or experience these manifestations of God's supernatural power as they did. We have whole movements built upon this. What would it be like to see Elijah call down fire from heaven? What would it be like to see Moses split the Red Sea? What would it be like to speak authoritatively, thus says the Lord? What would, have, what would it have been like to see Samuel praying and offering sacrifices to the Lord on the day when the Philistines were coming to attack them, and then the Lord thunders with a thunderous voice from heaven and scares the Philistine army away? What would it have been like to be the man who was with Elisha when Elisha prayed for his eyes to be opened and they were opened and he saw chariots of fire surrounding them, what would it have been like to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing in the fire unburned? What would it have been like to see Daniel come out of the lion's den unharmed? Or what about Isaiah when he prayed to the Lord that the sun would move backwards in the sky literally altering time. Yet, these prophets were looking forward to the day when God would fulfill his promise to take our sins away. The prophets who experienced these wonderful manifestations of the supernatural power of God looked forward to the days that you and I live in. Matthew 13, 16, and 17, Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see. And they didn't see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Do you see how great a salvation we have? It's not a cause for us to puff up our chests, but just in the same way that the prophets look forward to what Christ would do, we look backward at what Christ has done. From either perspective, from the prophets looking forward or us looking backward, we are both looking in humble admiration at the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this Jesus Christ who brought our salvation through suffering. This is our third point. Our salvation is brought forth in suffering. Look at what it says. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Indicating what person or time. This just essentially means what are going to be the details of this coming to pass. So let us not as we see that the sufferings of Christ were prophesied, let us not conflate the offer of free grace with cheap grace. Christ paid with his life. Salvation is not just any old thing. It is a most valuable inheritance secured by the precious blood of the Lamb. Innocent blood spilled for the guilty. As we consider the fact that these sufferings were prophesied of long ago, we have many of them in Isaiah 53. It is the song of the suffering servant 
Listen to this. It speaks of Christ being despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, on, uh, from whom men would hide their faces, despised, bearing our grief, carrying our sorrow, esteemed stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, oppressed, afflicted, our chastisement laid upon him, and given a grave amongst the wicked. These are the sufferings of Christ that were prophesied. Psalm 22 captures the words that Christ cries out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. These are the sufferings of our Savior, prophesied long ago. Let's ask then, as an aside, if Christ did not spare his own son from that kind of suffering, how could we possibly dare to expect to be spared? Why would we think it's going to be different for us? If Christ, his own sufferings were prophesied, he was a man acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, how could you and I expect for there to be anything different for you and me? Can't. But what we do know is that Christ has overcome the world. He's defeated sin, death, and the grave. He has resurrected to the right hand of the Father. And you know what? He's coming back when he will come in victory. So we know, number four, that Christ did not suffer in vain. I love how he says he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, the suffering had to come for the glories to come. We know he did not suffer in vain. Luke 9.22, this is Jesus speaking. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Several times in the gospel, we find similar, similar statements being made regarding Jesus knowing that he must suffer and telling his disciples so. We find in this verse, though, that he said he must suffer, be rejected and killed, and on the third day rise. Make no mistake, Jesus did not suffer needlessly. He has been raised from the dead by the spirit of holiness. He has been raised up to heaven. He has been given the seat at the right hand of the Father. He has been given the name above every name. His spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. He has opened a new and better way to get to the Father through his suffering on the cross. Make no mistake, this Jesus Christ is right now glorified. And he will continue to be glorified. He will indeed return again to exact 
vengeance on the myriad enemies who refuse to believe in the gospel. He will come back on the white horse wearing a robe dipped in blood, his enemies quaking in terror at the sight of him. You thought he was defeated on the cross? That's how he accomplished his victory. His children will leap for joy when their salvation has finally arrived. Moreover, all of those for whom Christ died for will be saved. This is why we are being guarded by God's power. We are part of Christ's reward. Do you understand? He's not going to leave his own glory or whether or not he fulfills his promise in our hands. How many times can we not even stick to waking up at the time we said we would wake up? But we're going to make it until the last day being holy as God is holy? No. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit and has sealed us for the last day. Does this alleviate us from all responsibility? By no means. We walk and pursue holiness, but we have faith knowing that it's God's power that's keeping me from running away from him. That I am quick to run. The old hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Bind my wandering heart to thee. That is our prayer, isn't it? Because we want to see Christ rewarded. We want to see him exalted and high and lifted up and glorified on the last day. Jesus Christ is glorified, will be glorified. And if you are his, you will always be his. He will not lose any of his. He will not be shortchanged on his reward. And that is why gospel preaching is empowered by the Holy Spirit, number five. Gospel preaching is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by, that is such an important word, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You understand, the same Spirit that prophesied the coming Christ is the same Spirit that proclaims turn to Christ. This is why gospel preaching is not hingent upon the brevity of the speaker, his eloquence, his ability to captivate listeners, his skill in stirring the emotions of the audience but it is hingent upon the power of the Spirit. You think God Almighty would leave it up to sinful humans whether or not He receives His glory? No, of course not. Luke 19.40 tells us that if we were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, He doesn't need you or me. He doesn't need me. He didn't need Charles Spurgeon. He doesn't need John MacArthur. He didn't need John Calvin. He doesn't need any future 
preacher or theologian that he ever raises up to be used for the good of his church at large. He chooses to use us. Knowing that all along it's the Holy Spirit sent from heaven that empowers the good news going forth. The same Spirit that prophesied the gospel is the same Spirit that empowers the preaching of the gospel. The Lord Himself is ensuring that the things written, the things that He has prophesied would come to pass, will come to pass. Holy Spirit-empowered preaching has the power to change lives, not because of the preacher, but because of the Spirit. It is the same Spirit who prophesied all that would and has come to pass, who inspired the writing of the written Word, that empowers the going forth of the Word, that also illuminates the Word to the mind and heart of the hearer, leading to radical transformation. That's why we sing songs that say, All glory be to Christ. Not an ounce, not a drip, not as R.C. Sproul always liked to say, a picadillo of glory goes to any one of us, certainly not me. What blessed recipients we are of this word. Peter writes of the prophets that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you, prophets of old were ministering to you. And now the word is being proclaimed to you as the Spirit empowers the good news being preached to you. I think it's safe to say that Christ loves his bride. Number six, even angels are amazed by God's work in salvation. The very last statement that he makes is things into which angels long to look. This is not the point of Peter writing this, but as an aside, here is more reason why it is absolutely foolish to worship or pray to angels. Angels are looking at what God is doing in a person's life and saying, wow, longing to look into them and know more about it. And here we are praying to angels. Angels are amazed by and rejoice at God's work of salvation in the lives of the elect. They are not seated on a throne. Do you not see the lavishing of grace upon grace upon grace from the benevolent hand of the Most High God? It is as though He is opening a bag of treasures and just dumping every last one of them out onto the table for your taking. Here, Take it. Take more. Here's more. Here's more. As he lavishes his love upon us in salvation. It is so rich a lavishing, so unfathomable a grace, such good news that even supernatural beings long to look into it. That's incredible. That is absolutely astonishing that even the angels who right now are in heaven, they 
don't get this salvation, do they? They don't experience the radical transformation, do they? They, of course, are in heaven, and I'm sure any one of us would gladly change positions with them right now. But you understand that even they look upon what God is doing in your life and say, wow. Luke 15, 10, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One. Angels jumping for joy. All of this incredible ground that we have covered is the basis upon which Peter exhorts his audience and by extension the rest of us to stand firm in the midst of persecution and trial. As I said next week, in verse 13, we have a big therefore coming. And all of that, all of the coming exhortation is powered by us keeping our minds and our hearts centered on what God has done in saving us. Let's stand. We're going to celebrate this salvation as we partake of the Lord's Supper. If I could call Michael and Josh forward.